Section 18 of Tongues of Conscience by Robert Hitchens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lisa Reichert. How Love Came to Professor Gildea, Part 4. In two days' time he received a note from Gildea, asking him to call, if possible, the same evening. This he was unable to do, as he had an engagement to fulfil at some East End gathering. The following day was Sunday. He wrote, saying he would come on Monday, and got a wire shortly afterwards. Yes, Monday, come to dinner, 7.30, Gildea. At half-past seven he stood on the doorstep of number 100. Pitting let him in. Is the professor quite well, Pitting? the father inquired as he took off his cloak. I believe so, sir. He has not made any complaint, the butler formally replied. Will you come upstairs, sir? Gildea met them at the door of the library. He was very pale and sombre, and shook hands carelessly with his friend. Give us dinner, he said to Pitting. As the butler retired, Gildea shut the door rather cautiously. Father Murchison had never before seen him look so disturbed. "'You're worried, Gildea,' the father said, seriously worried. "'Yes, I am. This business is beginning to tell on me a good deal.' "'Your belief in the presence of something here continues, then?' "'Oh, dear, yes. There's no sort of doubt about the matter. The night I went across the road into the park, something got into the house, though what the devil it is I can't yet find out.' But now, before we go down to dinner, I'll just tell you something about that proof I promised you. You remember? Naturally. Can't you imagine what it might be? Father Murchison moved his head to express a negative reply. Look about the room, said Gildea. What do you see? The father glanced round the room, slowly and carefully. Nothing unusual. You do not mean to tell me there is any appearance of— Oh, no, no, there's no conventional, white-robed, cloud-like figure. Bless my soul, no! I haven't fallen so low as that. He spoke with considerable irritation. Look again. Father Murchison looked at him, turned in the direction of his fixed eyes, and saw the grey parrot clambering in his cage, slowly and persistently. What, he said quickly, will the proof come from there? The professor nodded. I believe so, he said. Now let's go down to dinner. I want some food badly. They descended to the dining room. While they ate and Pitting waited upon them, the professor talked about birds, their habits, their curiosities, their fears, and their powers of imitation. He had evidently studied this subject with the thoroughness that was characteristic of him in all that he did. Parrots, he said presently, are extraordinarily observant. It is a pity that their means of reproducing what they see are so limited. If it were not so, I have little doubt that their echo of gesture would be as remarkable as their echo of voice often is but hands are missing. Yes, they do many things with their heads, however. I once knew an old woman near Goring on the Thames. She was afflicted with the palsy. She held her head perpetually sideways, and it trembled, moving from right to left. Her sailor son brought her home a parrot from one of his voyages. It used to reproduce the old woman's palsied movement of the head exactly. Those grey parrots are always on the watch." Gildea said the last sentence slowly and deliberately, glancing sharply over his wine at Father Murchison, and when he had spoken it, a sudden light of comprehension dawned in the priest's mind. He opened his lips to make a swift remark. Gildea turned his bright eyes towards Pitting, who at the moment was tenderly bearing a cheese meringue from the lift that connected the dining-room with the lower regions. The father closed his lips again, 
but presently, when the butler had placed some apples on the table, and meticulously arranged the decanters, brushed away the crumbs, and evaporated, he said quickly, "'I begin to understand. You think Napoleon is aware of the intruder?' "'I know it. He has been watching my visitant ever since the night of that visitant's arrival.' Another flash of light came to the priest. "'That was why you covered him with green baize one evening.' "'Exactly. An act of cowardice. His behaviour was beginning to grate upon my nerves.' Gildea pursed up his thin lips and drew his brows down, giving to his face a look of sudden pain. "'But now I intend to follow his investigations,' he added, straightening his features. "'The week I wasted at Westgate was not wasted by him in London, I can assure you. Have an apple.' "'No, thank you. No, thank you.' The father repeated the words without knowing that he did so. Gildea pushed away his glass. "'Let us come upstairs, then.' "'No, thank you,' reiterated the father. "'Eh?' "'What am I saying?' exclaimed the father, getting up. "'I was thinking over this extraordinary affair.' "'Ah, you're beginning to forget the hysteria theory?' They walked out into the passage. "'Well, you are so very practical about the whole matter.' "'Why not? Here's something very strange and abnormal come into my life. What should I do but investigate it closely and calmly?' "'What, indeed?' The father began to feel rather bewildered, under a sort of compulsion which seemed laid upon him to give earnest attention to a matter that ought to strike him, so he felt, as entirely absurd. When they came into the library his eyes immediately turned, with profound curiosity, towards the parrot's cage. A slight smile curled the professor's lips. He recognized the effect he was producing upon his friend. The father saw the smile. "'Oh, I'm not one over yet,' he said, in answer to it. "'I know. Perhaps you may be before the evening is over. Here comes the coffee. After we have drunk it, we'll proceed to our experiment. Leave the coffee pitting, and don't disturb us again.' "'No, sir.' "'I won't have it black to-night,' said the father. "'Plenty of milk, please. I don't want my nerves played upon.' "'Suppose we don't take coffee at all,' said Gildea. If we do, you may trot out the theory that we are not in a perfectly normal condition. I know you, Murchison, devout priest and devout sceptic. The father laughed and pushed away his cup. Very well, then. No coffee. One cigarette and then to business. The grey-blue smoke curled up. What are we going to do? said the father. He was sitting bolt upright as if ready for action. Indeed, there was no suggestion of repose in the attitude of either of the men. "'Hide ourselves and watch Napoleon. "'By the way, that reminds me.' "'He got up, went to a corner of the room, "'picked up a piece of green baize and threw it over the cage. "'I'll pull that off when we are hidden. "'And tell me first if you have had any manifestations "'of this supposed presence during the last few days. "'Merely an increasingly intense sensation of something here, "'perpetually watching me, "'perpetually attending to all my doings.' Do you feel that it follows you about? Not always. It was in this room when you arrived. It is here now, I feel. But in going down to dinner, we seem to get away from it. The conclusion is that it remained here. Don't let us talk about it just now. They spoke of other things till their cigarettes were finished. Then, as they threw away the smouldering ends, Gildia said, Now, Murchison, for the sake of this experiment, I suggest that we should conceal ourselves behind the curtains on either side of the cage, so that the bird's attention may not be drawn towards us, and so distracted from that which we want to know more about. 
I will pull away the green baize when we are hidden. Keep perfectly still, watch the bird's proceedings, and tell me afterwards how you feel about them, how you explain them. Tread softly. The father obeyed, and they stole towards the curtains that fell before the two windows. The father concealed himself behind those on the left of the cage, the professor behind those on the right. The latter, as soon as they were hidden, stretched out his arm, drew the baize down from the cage, and let it fall on the floor. The parrot, which had evidently fallen asleep in the warm darkness, moved on its perch as the light shone upon it, ruffled the feathers round its throat, and lifted first one foot and then the other. It turned its head round on its supple and apparently elastic neck, and, diving its beak into the down upon its back, made some searching investigations with, as it seemed, a satisfactory result, for it soon lifted its head again, glanced around its cage, and began to address itself to a nut which had been fixed between the bars for its refreshment. With its curved beak it felt and tapped the nut, at first gently, then with severity. Finally it plucked the nut from the bars, seized it with its rough grey toes, and, holding it down firmly on the perch, cracked it and pecked out its contents, scattering some on the floor of the cage, and letting the fractured shell fall into the china bath that was fixed against the bars. This accomplished, the bird paused meditatively, extended one leg backwards, and went through an elaborate process of wing-stretching that made it look as if it were lopsided and deformed. With its head reversed, it again applied itself to a subtle and exhaustive search among the feathers of its wing. This time its investigation seemed interminable, and Father Murchison had time to realise the absurdity of the whole position, and to wonder why he had lent himself to it. Yet he did not find his sense of humour laughing at it. On the contrary, he was smitten by a sudden gust of horror. When he was talking to his friend and watching him, the professor's manner, generally so calm, even so prosaic, vouched for the truth of his story, and the well-adjusted balance of his mind. But when he was hidden this was not so, and Father Murchison, standing behind his curtain, with his eyes upon the unconcerned Napoleon, began to whisper to himself the word, MADNESS, with a quickening sensation of pity and of dread. The parrot sharply contracted one wing, ruffled the feathers around its throat again, then extended its other leg backwards, and proceeded to the cleaning of its other wing. In the still room the dry sound of the feathers being spread was distinctly audible. Father Murchison saw the blue curtains behind which Gildea stood tremble slightly, as if a breath of wind had come through the window they shrouded. The clock in the far room chimed, and a coal dropped into the grate, making a noise like dead leaves, stirring abruptly on hard ground. And again a gust of pity and of dread swept over the father. It seemed to him that he had behaved very foolishly, if not wrongly, in encouraging what must surely be the strange dementia of his friend. He ought to have declined to lend himself to a proceeding that, ludicrous, even childish in itself, might well be dangerous in the encouragement it gave to a diseased expectation. Napoleon's protruding leg, extended wing and twisted neck, his busy and unconscious devotion to the arrangement of his person, his evident sensation of complete loneliness, most comfortable solitude, brought home with vehemence to the father the undignified buffoonery of his conduct, the more piteous buffoonery of his friend. He seized the curtains with his hands, and was about to thrust them aside and issue forth 
when an abrupt movement of the parrot stopped him. The bird, as if sharply attracted by something, paused in its pecking, and with its head still bent backwards and twisted sideways on its neck, seemed to listen intently. Its round eye looked glistening and strained like the eye of a disturbed pigeon. Contracting its wing, it lifted its head and sat for a moment erect on its perch, shifting its feet mechanically up and down, as if a dawning excitement produced in it an uncontrollable desire of movement. Then it thrust its head forward in the direction of the further room, and remained perfectly still. Its attitude so strongly suggested the concentration of its attention on something immediately before it, that Father Murchison instinctively stared about the room, half expecting to see Pitting advance softly, having entered through the door. He did not come, and there was no sound in the chamber. Nevertheless, the parrot was obviously getting excited and increasingly attentive. It bent its head lower and lower, stretching out its neck until, almost falling from the perch, it half extended its wings, raising them slightly from its back, as if about to take flight, and fluttering them rapidly up and down. It continued this fluttering movement for what seemed to the father an immense time. At length, raising its wings as far as possible, it dropped them slowly and deliberately down to its back, caught hold of the edge of its bath with its beak, hoisted itself onto the floor of the cage, waddled to the bars, thrust its head against them, and stood quite still, in the exact attitude it always assumed when its head was being scratched by the professor. So complete was the suggestion of this delight conveyed by the bird that Father Murchison felt as if he saw a white finger gently pushed among the soft feathers of its head, and he was seized by a most strong conviction that something, unseen by him but seen and welcomed by Napoleon, stood immediately before the cage. The parrot presently withdrew its head, as if the coaxing finger had been lifted from it, and its pronounced air of acute physical enjoyment faded into one of marked attention and alert curiosity. Pulling itself up by the bars, it climbed again upon its perch, sidled to the left side of the cage, and began apparently to watch something with profound interest. It bowed its head oddly, paused for a moment, then bowed its head again. Father Murchison found himself conceiving, from this elaborate movement of the head, a distinct idea of a personality. The bird's proceedings suggested extreme sentimentality, combined with that sort of weak determination, which is often the most persistent. Such weak determination is a very common attribute of persons who are partially idiotic. Father Murchison was moved to think of these poor creatures who will often, so strangely and unreasonably, attach themselves with persistence to those who love them least. Like many priests, he had had some experience of them, for the amorous idiot is peculiarly sensitive to the attraction of preachers. This bowing movement of the parrot recalled to his memory a terrible, pale woman who for a time haunted all churches in which he ministered, who was perpetually endeavouring to catch his eye, and who always bent her head with an obsequious and cunningly conscious smile when she did so. The parrot went on bowing, making a short pause between each genuflection, as if it waited for the signal to be given that called into play its imitative faculty. "'Yes, yes, it's imitating an idiot,' Father Murchison caught himself saying as he watched. "'A lovesick idiot!' 
and he looked again about the room, but saw nothing, except the furniture, the dancing fire, and the serried ranks of the books. Presently the parrot ceased from bowing, and assumed the concentrated and stretched attitude of one listening very keenly. He opened his beak, showing his black tongue, shut it, then opened it again. The father thought he was going to speak, but he remained silent, although it was obvious that he was trying to bring out something. He bowed again two or three times, paused, and then again, opening his beak, made some remark. The father could not distinguish any words, but the voice was sickly and disagreeable, a cooing and at the same time querulous voice, like a woman's, he thought. And he put his ear nearer to the curtain, listening with almost feverish attention. The bowing was resumed, but this time Napoleon, adding to it a sidling movement, affectionate and affected, like the movement of a silly and eager thing, nestling up to someone or giving someone a gentle and furtive nudge. Again the father thought of that terrible, pale woman who had haunted churches. Several times he had come upon her waiting for him after evening services. Once she had hung her head smiling and lolled out her tongue and pushed against him sideways in the dark. He remembered how his flesh had shrunk from the poor thing, the sick loathing of her that he could not banish by remembering that her mind was all astray. The parrot paused, listened, opened its beak, and again said something in the same dove-like amorous voice, full of sickly suggestion and yet hard, even dangerous, in its intonation. A loathsome voice, the father thought it. But this time, although he heard the voice more distinctly than before, he could not make up his mind whether it was like a woman's voice or a man's, or perhaps a child's. It seemed to be a human voice, and yet oddly sexless. In order to resolve his doubt, he withdrew into the darkness of the curtains, ceased to watch Napoleon, and simply listened with keen attention, striving to forget that he was listening to a bird, and to imagine that he was overhearing a human being in conversation. After two or three minutes' silence, the voice spoke again, and at some length, apparently repeating several times, an affectionate series of ejaculations, with a cooing emphasis that was unutterably mawkish and offensive. The sickliness of the voice, its falling intonations and its strange indelicacy, combined with a die-away softness and meretricious refinement, made the father's flesh creep. Yet he could not distinguish any words, nor could he decide on the voice's sex or age. One thing alone he was certain of, as he stood still in the darkness, that such a sound could only proceed from something peculiarly loathsome, could only express a personality unendurably abominable to him, if not to everybody. The voice presently failed in a sort of husky gasp, and there was a prolonged silence. It was broken by the professor, who suddenly pulled away the curtains that hid the father and said to him, "'Come out now and look.' The father came into the light, blinking, glanced towards the cage, and saw Napoleon poised motionless on one foot, with his head under his wing. He appeared to be asleep. The professor was pale, and his mobile lips were drawn into an expression of supreme disgust. "'Fah!' he said. He walked to the windows of the further room, pulled aside the curtains, and pushed the glass up, letting in the air. The bare trees were visible in the grey gloom outside. Gildea leaned out for a minute, drawing the night air into his lungs. Presently he turned round to the father and exclaimed abruptly, "'Pestilent, isn't it?' 
"'Yes, most pestilent. "'Ever hear anything like it?' "'Not exactly.' "'Nor I. "'It gives me nausea, Murchison. "'Absolute physical nausea.' "'He closed the window and walked uneasily about the room. "'What do you make of it?' he asked over his shoulder. "'How do you mean, exactly?' "'Is it man's, woman's, or child's voice?' "'I can't tell. I can't make up my mind.' "'Nor I. "'Have you heard it often?' "'Yes, since I returned from Westgate. "'There are never any words that I can distinguish. "'What a voice!' "'He spat into the fire. "'Forgive me,' he said, throwing himself down in a chair. "'It turns my stomach, literally.' "'And mine,' said the father, truly. "'The worst of it is,' continued Gildea, "'with a high, nervous accent, "'that there's no brain with it, none at all, "'only the cunning of idiocy.' The father started at this exact expression of his own conviction by another. "'Why do you start like that?' asked Gildea, with a quick suspicion which showed the unnatural condition of his nerves. "'Well, the very same idea had occurred to me.' "'What?' "'That I was listening to the voice of something idiotic.' "'Ah, that's the devil of it, you know, to a man like me. I could fight against brain, but this—' He sprang up again, poked the fire violently, then stood on the hearthrug with his back to it, and his hands thrust into the high pockets of his trousers. "'That's the voice of the thing that's got into my house. Pleasant, isn't it?' And now there was real horror in his eyes and in his voice. "'I must get it out!' he exclaimed. "'I must get it out! But how?' He tugged at his short black beard with a quivering hand. "'How?' he continued. "'For what is it? Where is it?' "'You feel it's here, now?' "'Undoubtedly!' but I couldn't tell you in what part of the room. He stared about, glancing rapidly at everything. Then you consider yourself haunted, said Father Murchison. He, too, was much moved and disturbed, although he was not conscious of the presence of anything near them in the room. I have never believed in any nonsense of that kind, as you know, Gildea answered. I simply state a fact which I cannot understand, and which is beginning to be very painful to me. There is something here— but whereas most so-called hauntings have been described to me as inimical, what I am conscious of is that I am admired, loved, desired. This is distinctly horrible to me, Murchison, distinctly horrible. Father Murchison suddenly remembered the first evening he had spent with Gildea, and the latter's expression almost of disgust at the idea of receiving warm affection from anyone. In the light of that long-ago conversation, the present event seemed supremely strange and almost like a punishment for an offence committed by the professor against humanity. But looking up at his friend's twitching face, the father resolved not to be caught in the net of his hideous belief. "'There can be nothing here,' he said. "'It's impossible.' "'What does that bird imitate, then?' "'The voice of someone who has been here.' "'Within the last week, then, for it never spoke like that before, and mind, I noticed that it was watching and striving to imitate something before I went away.' since the night that I went into the park, only since then. Somebody with a voice like that must have been here while you were away, Father Murchison repeated with a gentle obstinacy. I'll soon find out. Gildea pressed the bell. Pitting stole in almost immediately. Pitting, said the professor, speaking in a high, sharp voice. Did anyone come into this room during my absence at the sea? Certainly not, sir, except the maids, and me, sir. "'Not a soul? You are certain?' "'Perfectly certain, sir.' The cold voice of the butler sounded surprised, almost resentful, 
the professor flung out his hand towards the cage has the bird been here the whole time yes sir he was not moved taken elsewhere even for a moment pitting's pale face began to look almost expressive and his lips were pursed certainly not sir thank you that will do the butler retired moving with a sort of ostentatious rectitude when he had reached the door and was just going out his master called wait a minute pitting the butler paused gildea bit his lips tugged at his beard uneasily two or three times and then said have you noticed uh, the parrot talking lately in a a very peculiar very disagreeable voice yes sir a soft voice like sir ha since when since you went away sir he's always at it exactly well and what did you think of it beg pardon sir what do you think about his talking in this voice oh that it's only his play sir i see that's all pitting the butler disappeared and closed the door noiselessly behind him gildea turned his eyes on his friend there you see he ejaculated it's certainly very odd said the father very odd indeed you are certain you have no maid who talks at all like that my dear murchison would you keep a servant with such a voice about you for two days no my housemaid has been with me for five years my cook for seven you've heard pitting speak the three of them make up my entire household a parrot never speaks in a voice it has not heard where has it heard that voice but we hear nothing no nor do we see anything but it does it feels something too didn't you observe it presenting its head to be scratched certainly it seemed to be doing so it was doing so father murchison said nothing he was full of increasing discomfort that almost amounted to apprehension are you convinced said gildea rather irritably no the whole matter is very strange but till i hear see or feel as you do the presence of something i cannot believe it you mean that you will not perhaps well it is time i went gildea did not try to detain him but said as he let him out do me a favour come again to-morrow night the father had an engagement he hesitated looked into the professor's face and said i will at nine i'll be with you good night when he was on the pavement he felt relieved he turned round saw gildea stepping into his passage and shivered end of section eighteen